Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. I'm talking about women on this podcast, Roaring Girls. We're looking at five essential feminists you may well never have heard of, but who changed the course of British and world history. You're going to love this podcast. It's with Holly Kite. She is an editor. She's a literary critic. She's a journalist. She's an author. And she's written a book called Roaring Girls, The Forgotten Feminists of British History. It's out now. It's brilliant. You've got to go and check it out. And we are going to look at women who fought, women who wrote, and women who broke down barriers. I think that we're living through a reckoning at the moment. And I think these women, in a generation or two's time, will be as famous or more than the typically male military or political or scientific heroes that my generation were brought up to study and admire. It's exciting. We're living in exciting times. So, from Mole Cutpurse, the 17th century kind of Robin Hood figure of London, right the way through to Anne Lister, business magnate, adventurer, and the first modern lesbian... You're going to get it all here. If you want to go and watch some documentaries as well as listen to history, you can go to History Hit TV. You simply follow the link in the description of this podcast. You click on that little link. That's all you've got to do. It's very simple. Just do it now with your thumb. Look down at the phone. Don't worry. Look down at the phone. Just click on that link. It'll take you through. You get two weeks free if you sign up today. And let me tell you, we're going great guns on there. Lots more coming up. Hundreds and hundreds of documentaries on there. Plus all the back episodes of this and the other History at Podcasts. So you're going to love all that. And it's getting bigger all the time. That's what Netflix is complaining about, losing followers. We're smashing it. Excellent. So, folks, head over and do that. But before you do, here is Holly Kite talking about Roaring Girls. Enjoy. Holly, great to have you on the pod. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very glad to have you because I want to know what a roaring girl is because I feel I've got a few in my life. (laughs) So what is a roaring girl? It's a really interesting historical term. It dates from the early 1600s. And I'll give you the dictionary definition, which is a noisy, bawdy or riotous woman, especially one who takes on a masculine role. And obviously, in the early 1600s, this is a bit of a problem because that's the absolute opposite of what a woman was supposed to be. So I chose to write about eight women 
who all lived very broadly in the 300 years before feminism kicked off and became a sort of mobilised movement. And so they were living in a real rights vacuum. They were expected to get married and have babies, and that was the extent of their ambition that they were allowed to have. They weren't allowed to get a proper education. They weren't allowed to take part in sort of public civic life. And the minute they got married, they became a legal non-entity. They literally became subsumed into the identity of their husbands, which meant that they couldn't own their own property or earn their own money. So they were completely infantilised and simply couldn't do anything. And so the way that they were supposed to behave, they were supposed to be pure and modest and obedient and, if possible, silent. And so A Roaring Girl was the complete opposite of that. It was a woman who I tried to sort of explain it succinctly in my book by saying A Roaring Girl was loud when she should be quiet, disruptive when she should be submissive, sexual when she should be pure, masculine when she should be feminine. And basically she was society's worst nightmare before feminism existed. And the best thing about this term is that it originates from a play written in 1611 called The Roaring Girl, which was by Thomas Middleton and Thomas Decker, contemporaries of Shakespeare. And it was about this character called Moll Cutpurse, who was a cross-dressing, pipe-smoking, sword-wielding thief. (laughs) And the great thing about this character is that she is the heroine of this play. And even better than that, she is based on a real woman called Mary Frith, who was likewise a cross-dressing, pipe-smoking, sword-wielding, hard-drinking, foul-mouthed thief in Jacobean London, who became a real kind of folk heroine. She was sort of a criminal, but everyone kind of loved her at the same time. (laughs) So before we come on to Mary Frith, do you think the audiences, would it have been a recognisable person? Would there have been lots of roaring girls about the place? It's interesting because the play is the first sort of recorded usage of the term. But the beginning of the play, the sort of prologue, makes clear that the audience will know what a roaring girl is. And a roaring boy had existed for decades beforehand as a sort of stock character in the theatre. So it was something that the audience would recognise and the playwrights are definitely playing on that and sort of saying you're expecting this roaring girl to be a complete nightmare and a disruptive, dreadful woman but actually we're going to show you a roaring girl who's pretty great and you're going to love her by the end of this because they completely overturn everybody's expectations of what they're expecting of a roaring girl. What did you find out about Mary Frith, the woman who it's based on? Well, so, yeah, she was genuinely a thief. Her nickname was Mole Cutpurse. So she went around snipping people's purses off. She got arrested several times in her youth for thieving, but she was clearly quite good at wriggling out of trouble because she always... I mean, this was a hanging offence at the time, theft, so it was a dangerous occupation. She always managed to wriggle out of trouble and she basically kind of rose through the ranks of the criminal underworld and became a kind of sort of Fagin-like character where she was in charge of a coterie of thieves where basically they went out and did her dirty work for her. She received the stolen goods and she set up what she called a lost property office where people could then reclaim their stolen goods for a bit of money. So she had a very cushy scenario going on where her thieves would look after her, she would look after them, and she was sort of the queen of misrule, they called her. So she was in a pretty powerful, considering she was from the low lives of London, she was quite a powerful figure. And even the authorities kind of used her to kind of entrap other thieves and sort of help them with their inquiries and stuff. But she trod a very fine line between being safe and not being safe. And the really 
interesting thing is that at some point she started cross-dressing and also became a sort of street entertainer. So she would distract the crowds by sort of doing a little skit in the street in her crazy clothes while her pickpockets would go around nicking everybody's purses. And this turned her into an entertainment of folk heroine. People loved her so much that she became the subject of a play and was the heroine of that play. So it's quite an unusual trajectory. But she did get in trouble eventually because she was clearly complicit in this play. And at one point, soon after it had started running, she appeared at the end of the play, did a sort of musical piece at the end of the play. And of course, this was when women were not allowed on the stage. So she probably got arrested for that. And there's in her trial record, there's a hilarious list of her misdemeanours. Obviously, she'd been on stage as a woman, which was completely illegal. She was dressing as a man the whole time. She'd been in ale houses and tobacco houses and she'd been swearing. And wherever she went, everyone got their purses stolen. So she eventually (laughs) ended up as her punishment. She was thrown into the Bridewell House of Correction several times. And then eventually she was made to do public penance in a white sheet which was exactly that. She had to wear a white sheet and go to St Paul's Cross and listen to a very boring sermon about why she'd sinned. And she did not care. She did not care to the point where she was blind drunk throughout the whole thing. (laughs) Sounds like an absolute legend. And 1600 London, I think it's like 200,000 population. So kind of similar, I guess, to York today, the city of York, people have been there. So she would have been a bit famous, right? People kind of probably would have known her and seen her about. Absolutely. I think in Jacobean London, she really was famous. I mean, there's an eyewitness account of her public penance. And (laughs) not only does he observe that she was drunk throughout it, but he also says that basically the crowd were only there to see her. They didn't really care about the punishment element of it. They certainly didn't care about the priest's sermon, which they found incredibly boring, and most of them wandered off halfway through. The ones who did stay, he very categorically says they stayed to hear what she had to say because she was so famous. And she was famous enough to be immortalised in a play, so... Big time. Let's keep going through your list of roaring women. I'm really interested in Mary Astle because I'd never heard of her to my great shame. Yeah, she's just not known at all. And in a sense, she's the least roaring of my roaring girls because she was actually very conservative in many ways, which I think is possibly why she's been so forgotten. She was a kind of impoverished gentlewoman and she was very much trapped in the gentlewoman's situation whereby she didn't have any actual money, but because she was a gentlewoman, it was frowned upon for her to get a job or work. And so she was completely stuck. And for most women in that situation, the solution was that she got married and her husband then provided for her. But Mary Estelle clearly had no interest in marrying men whatsoever. It's very likely that she was gay. And she had a fierce, fierce intellect. And so she had an uncle who had been to Oxford and educated her. And so... By the time she was in her 20s, she started writing incredible feminist... I think she's probably the only woman in the book who we can legitimately call an early feminist. So she writes in 1694 a pamphlet called A Serious Proposal to the Ladies, which is basically a treatise on how women are men's intellectual equal and how they absolutely have every right to be as educated as they are and to have all the opportunities that they have. So she's writing a 100 years before Mary Wollstonecraft, but basically arguing the same thing. And it was such an impressive pamphlet. It's full of complete zingers. Her writing is amazing. It's got beautiful sound bites everywhere. And it's such a persuasive, rational argument. And this was what was so unusual. There had been defences of women before that, for a long time before that, but they were usually quite reactionary. And the sort of sole argument was, yeah, but there's been loads of great women. Like, look at her and her and her and her. Whereas Mary Estelle put forward a real rational, logical argument that kind of 
galvanised the whole thing and put it all into one perfect parcel. And then she went on a few years later in 1700 to write another pamphlet called Some Reflections Upon Marriage, where she basically told women that marriage should not be their ultimate goal. It should not be their only ambition. She really wanted women to understand what marriage meant for women, the legal invisibility that it created, the fact that they were then bound to obey their husbands, regardless of how their husband treated them. They could have married somebody violent, somebody drunk, a philanderer. They still had to obey their husbands. And she found this intolerable. And she's saying something so radical at the time. She was attacking basically the foundation of the whole patriarchal system. I mean, the whole sort of Christian society was based on marriage and the patriarchal system was based upon marriage. It was a dynastic way of sort of funneling money and ensuring lineage and all this kind of stuff. And she was basically telling women, you can do better than this. This doesn't have to be your sole ambition in life. And if you are going to do it, please understand what you're getting yourself into. So despite being a very ascetic, religious conservative Tory woman. She was actually, in her feminist views, incredibly radical. So she's a very interesting contradiction in that sense. Is this an example of where you and a new generation of scholars are finding, rediscovering things like a serious proposal to the ladies? And these might become canonical. I mean, in in a generation time, our kids might be studying these as my generation studied Rudyard Kipling's If about how to be a man. This is really exciting. It is really exciting. And I really hope that they do become part of the canonical feminist works because they really should. I mean, Mary Estelle, like I said, her writing is very accessible given how early she was writing. And it goes further back than that. Like Christine de Pizan was writing The City of the Book of Ladies in 1405. These incredible works that I hadn't heard of until a few years ago. And they really should. It's so encouraging to find these things, like little treasures that you discover in the past, where you're like, oh, these women have always felt like this. They've always felt the frustration and they've always tried to fight against it. But for some reason, it's been ignored and it's been buried under the deeds of men in the study of history. And it is really exciting that we're unearthing it all. Is that so history? We're talking roaring girls. More coming up. Have you ever wondered if the Hanging Gardens of Babylon were actually real? Or what made Alexander so great? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History hit, where I'm joined by leading academics, best-selling authors and world-class archaeologists to shine a light on some of ancient history's most fascinating questions, like who built Stonehenge and why? What are the Dead Sea Scrolls and why are they so valuable? And were the Spartan warriors really as formidable as the history books say? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History hit wherever you get your podcasts. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Let's go to a very different kind of remarkable woman at next, which is Hannah Snell, who is someone who I have come across quite a lot doing 18th century military history. And she's sort of shrouded in mystery, isn't she? So what have you decided about Hannah Snell? Tell me who she is and what have you made out about her life? Yes, she's a really tricky one. So mid-18th century, she is a woman who, according to her biography that was written at the time, she started off trying to do the sort of conventional female thing. She got married and had a baby, but her husband left her and her baby died. And so after that, she apparently raided her brother-in-law's wardrobe, took a suit of his clothes and strolled off and joined the Marines and went to fight in the first Carnatic War in the siege of Pondicherry, which was basically a fight between the British and the French over Indian territory and fought as a man, took the name James Gray and apparently, according to her, was not discovered, managed to get away with it, even when she was injured in the groin and had to pull out the musket ball herself, apparently. And when she came back, she did the big reveal and was like, hey, everyone, I'm actually a woman. And she became a huge celebrity. And her biography, like a publisher, very quickly leapt on her and wrote her story up for her. And then she had her own stage show where she would do sort of military manoeuvres and all this kind of stuff. And for a very short period of time, she was a real celebrity. It didn't last very long. But the trouble is, <laughs> is that there's a lot of conflicting stuff. A lot of details of the biography don't quite fit the actual dates and places and battles that she was supposed to have been involved in. And so it is a real minefield for historians trying to figure out what might be true and what possibly isn't true, what they've embellished to try and make her more of a celebrity and make people more interested in her story. And I think I came to the conclusion that there were definitely embellishments, definitely a few shifts here and there where they changed stuff. But I think there's no real reason to not believe the essence of her story because she was not the only one who did it. There are loads and loads of other women. There was a huge trend for women cross-dressing in general, and quite a lot of them ended up going off to war in some form or other. And most of them didn't get discovered until they decided to reveal it. And most of them, even though it was not an easy life, it was not a pleasant life, and you kind of think, well, why would women do this? Why would they keep on doing it when, you know, if they're being threatened with a flogging for something, why didn't they just say, actually, no, I'm a woman, don't, you know, they could get out of it very, very easily. And they don't. And it's obviously because their new life of freedom and adventure is so precious to them that they will not give it up at all. 
And there's enough factual evidence in the records, I think, to prove that she essentially was what she said she was. I mean, she was given a pension by the Royal Hospital Chelsea, so they obviously believed her. The Duke of Cumberland, didn't she? She managed to stop in the street yes, and he agreed that she she'd did. done a movie. Yeah. Oh, Harangued him in person, yeah. Yeah, she's an extraordinary story. I love that. Mary Prince, amazing. So first woman of colour, first black woman to sort of publish her memoirs in Britain. That's an extraordinary thing. Yes. I mean, she, of all the eight women in my book, obviously, they were dealing with the repression of being a woman. Mary Prince had to deal with that and the repression of being a black woman. And so, of course, she was born into slavery in Bermuda. She then was moved to Antigua. And then in 1828, she arrived in London with her master. And she was in a kind of weird legal loophole the minute she stepped on British soil because it had been established in law that a slave couldn't exist on English soil. So technically she was free the minute she stepped on English soil. But if she decided to go home, she would instantly become a slave again. So she was in a complete catch-22. And she had a husband back in Antigua. She didn't want to be in England. She wanted to go home. So she could be free in England, but without any of her family or her husband. Or she could be a slave back in Antigua. And she obviously desperately did not want to be a slave. And so she went to the Anti-Slavery Society and found sort of sympathetic ears with them. And she decided basically that she had to tell her story to try and do something to try and sort this out. This was in 1828. The abolition campaign had been going for decades already. It was kind of building to its crescendo. So the timing was right. And so she told her story to a man called Thomas Pringle, who was the secretary of the Anti-Slavery Society. And it was written down by a woman called Susanna Strickland. And there's various issues about how they might have changed her words slightly and left certain things out to make it more palatable. But it's like all slave narratives, it's a horrific read of just pure brutality and it did incredibly well with the public I mean I think it really shocked people I mean they'd heard slave narratives before but this was the first one to come from a woman and it obviously really hit a nerve with people it did very very well it went through several editions but it also interestingly people's first reaction was to not believe her and so there were for example, she had to go through a couple of really humiliating physical examinations. People who wanted to see the physical scars, they were like, OK, she says she's been flogged this many times, but I want to see if she's actually got the scars. And she did have scars all over her back, but she had to prove it. And then there was a libel case from her owner saying that everything she was saying was not true. So she ended up having to testify in court to the truth of her story. So there was a real sort of dual thing going on where it was really connecting with the public. But there was also the scepticism of just not believing a black woman, which is pretty upsetting for her and for us. But who knows how you can quantify the effect it had. But obviously, abolition came just a few years afterwards. So it obviously came at the right time and really helped galvanise the whole thing. Yeah, this part of us, well, so much of her story is horrific, but part of it is when she and her sisters are sold separately to different slave traders. It's just harrowing you know, those children. Yeah, I mean, she's 12 years old and they're just ripped apart and separated and it was absolutely standard. It was kind of deliberate because it helped to destabilise the black community. It like pulled them apart so that they couldn't have that solidarity together. So it made them weaker. It was a deliberate thing that they did. Let's come to Anne Lister, who I knew nothing about. Tell me all about Anne Lister. Well, I mean, where does one start with Anne Lister? So people will probably know her now from the BBC period drama Gentleman Jack. But a few years before that, she was relatively unsung. So she was a force of nature, a real force of nature. She kind of sucked every drop out of life. She was a landowner, an industrialist, a mountaineer, 
a scholar and she was also a lesbian who wrote very candidly in an immense diary of five million words across her lifetime in detail about her sexual liaisons with women. But what's fabulous is that because this was a sort of unspeakable thing in the early 1800s, which is when we're talking about, she devised a secret code of her own making, which was bits of Greek and algebra and punctuation marks and stuff, and sort of wrote in her own code about her relationships with women. And obviously for over 150 years, nobody knew about this. They were kind of like, oh, what are these coded passages about? And when they were finally decoded, I mean, for a long time, they were originally decoded in the sort of late 19th century, and they were so horrified that they put her diaries into a cupboard and hid them away for 40 years. Even in the 1960s, they were sort of like, mm, no, there's nothing of interest here. And then finally, in the 1980s, they were properly decoded and published. And it was just an incredible moment in LGBTQ plus history where suddenly you have an incredibly detailed and honest account of what it was like to be a lesbian woman in the early 19th century. She's extraordinary anyway, even without that. But with that, it's really quite something. So it's great that she's finally got her own TV show because she's always been destined for that, frankly. She's got her own show. And she was a mad adventurer as well. Very modern in that respect. The kind of person that we'd all be following on Instagram now. Oh, absolutely. She would be huge if she was around and she'd be so delighted that she was famous because she really did understand that she was unusual she understood that she was sort of a genius basically that she could sort of turn her hand to anything and that she was very indomitable and you know she was a great businesswoman and she would stride around she didn't cross dress as such but she dressed in a very masculine way so she would wear sort of a masculine riding habit and a top hat and a big great coat and things like that so she looked very different very deliberately she looked very different she would always wear black that was a conscious decision she saw herself more I think as a man than a woman she didn't like the sort of trapping she hated her petticoats she didn't like being reminded of anything to do with being a woman she was an absolute extraordinary woman who I think would be extraordinary even now it's extraordinary. That's an interesting word, isn't it? Like every time I get someone like you on the podcast who's just absolutely bringing this overlooked history to a wide audience, I always ask, like, what should we think about these women? Are they outliers? Are they so unusual? Is that why we've stumbled across them? Or are they just representatives of huge numbers of women throughout history that have been doing all sorts of interesting things but have been denied memoirs and biographers? and in knighthoods and sort of statues. Like, how have you come to think about women? It's a really interesting point. The fact that they have even come down to us in the historical record means that in some way they are extraordinary because a completely ordinary woman who never sort of disrupted things usually would make absolutely no imprint on the historical record at all and we simply wouldn't know about them. So in that sense, they are extraordinary and, as you say, kind of outliers and not behaving in the way that women would normally behave. But I think they're also indicative of a wider trend in that they can't possibly be the only women who felt like this. As with today, there have always been women who have been intellectually curious, who have been more comfortable in breeches than in a dress. You know, these women have always existed. And I think there's, it's bound to be a sort of grayscale of how they managed to indulge that. And that was kind of what I was interested in exploring, sort of how these women negotiated the world in a time when it wasn't acceptable to be like that. So my last question is, when I share books like yours with my daughter, I always ask her, how does it make you feel to know that women had these 
gigantic legal and cultural impediments, chains placed around them. And so are books like yours hopeful? Is this work hopeful because it gives brilliant women a history that they thought they'd been denied until now? Or is it depressing that women have been treated so awfully through history? How should we use your history? It's a bit of both. It's one of those annoying questions where it's a bit of both. I think certainly when I was writing it, you do constantly feel angry because you're constantly just like, how was this ever allowed? How is this ever possible? It's so obvious to us that women are men's intellectual equal and that we shouldn't be repressed in this way. But it also does give you a slight sense of hope in that you sort of think, well, you know, I think the reason why there is so much interest at the moment in rediscovering these women is because the longer feminism goes on, the more the goalposts shift and we realise that we haven't made quite as much progress as we thought we had. And I think at the moment we're very conscious of the gender pay gap and the fact that two women a week are killed by domestic violence and the fact that 1% of rape accusations end in convictions and things like that. And those things are depressing for women and it feels like such a huge structural change still needs to happen. But there is a sense of hope when I think you read about women in history like this because you think, my God, they had so much more to overcome than we do now. We have come a long way. And if they were able to deal with the scale of the issue then, and it must have felt completely overwhelming to them. They were dealing with the absolute basics of I want an education I want to be able to be legally visible I want to be able to wear what I want to wear absolute basic stuff and they were still able to fight it and so I think you have to take that from it that the scale of the task no matter how big it is we have to rise to it well thank you very much indeed that was great what's the book called it's called Roaring Girls the extraordinary lives of history's unsung heroines brilliant thank you very much for coming on Thank you for having me. I think we'll have the history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. Thanks, folks, for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. As I say all the time, I love doing these podcasts. They are the best thing I do professionally. I feel very lucky to have you listening to them. If you fancied giving them a rating and review, obviously the best rating review possible would be ideal. It makes a big difference to us. I know it's a pain, but we'd really, really be grateful. And if you want to listen to the other podcasts in our ever-increasing stable, don't forget we've got Susanna Lipscomb with Not Just the Tudors, that's flying high in the charts. We've got our medieval podcast, Gone Medieval, with the brilliant Matt Lewis and Kat Jarman. We've got The Ancients with our very own Tristan Hughes. And we've got Warfare as well. Dealing with all things military. Please go and check those out wherever you get your pods. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.